have a little bit of a cold. I've had a couple of those since this all started. And I, I forgot know, that they existed. Everybody was insisting to me that it had to be COVID, and, and it turned out to just be a cold. So. Yeah, we forgot what the common cold feels like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they suck, apparently. I don't like it. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the state Supreme Court may have the final word on whether the practice of sending juvenile prisoners to detention facilities out of state is legal. And a federal magistrate is demanding to know why high-level discussions continue to take place concerning an alternative to the previously mandated construction of the jail facility known as Phase 3. A recent independent analysis concludes that the proposed grain elevator project in St. John the Baptist Parish will cost that area over $200 million in lost revenue. New Orleans schools are welcoming kids back to school with no masks in sight. And the NOLA Public Schools District has accused the city's largest charter school operator of violating state law and Louisiana Department of Education policy at three of its schools. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Good morning, Nick. Morning, Kayla. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg's here. Hey, Josh. Hey, good morning. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. So, Nick, an attorney has the state Supreme Court looking at the practice of sending juvenile defendants to out-of-state facilities. We've been talking about this. You've done a lot of reporting on it. Can you remind us how often this happens and why? Sure. I mean, I can try and remind you, but we don't actually really know how often <laughs> it happens, which is uh, one of the issues that uh, people raise about it. So to, to yeah, give some background, um, when kids are arrested in various parishes or cities throughout the state and are determined to need to need to go to a detention center, basically it's up to the individual localities where these kids are sent. Um, so some places like New Orleans have have their own juvenile detention centers and basically every kid who gets arrested will and who is determined to need to you know be in detention will go to that detention center. Um, but some parishes don't have that, and they either need to, you know, contract with with other parishes around the state, or in some cases, we've we found out they'll go out of state. Um, in particular, there's a detention center in Mississippi in Natchez um, where they've been sending kids. There was a detention center in Dothan, Alabama, um, in the southeast corner of the state, quite far away, um, where kids were being sent as well. Although it now appears that that maybe they aren't getting sent there anymore. There was an incident recently um, with some kids from Louisiana at, at that facility, and it appears that they are no longer taking uh, kids from Louisiana anymore. But this, this still appears to be occurring. There still seems to be kids at, the, at this Mississippi facility. And, you know, over the last year or so, there's been dozens of kids uh, from dozens of different parishes going out of state. So we do know that it's relatively frequent. It's not, you know, a really rare occurrence. And parishes are, are paying, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to to these other states' facilities to to house kids from Louisiana. And when questioned, what are their what are their justifications? Well, you know, parishes basically say we have we have nowhere to 
put these kids. Uh, there are limited facilities in the state. Um, some of those facilities have standing agreements with other parishes. So even if there are open beds, they'll sometimes be reserved. So really, it's just, it's just you know, according to the parishes that are that are doing this, that it's just a lack of bed space um, more than anything else. But you know, there's a lot of concerns over the implications of, of sending kids across state lines. You know, first of all, just sending kids far away from their from their home is is generally considered not a best practice to, for if if you want to rehabilitate a child or you know, for these kids haven't haven't gone to trial, they haven't been even convicted of anything. They they've just been arrested. So sending kids hours um, away from from their families, from their lawyers. Um, you know, it, it is a cause for concern for a lot of people. And then, you know, there's, there's also a question of legality and whether or not state law even, even allows for, for this to happen. Right. So what are all the legal ramifications? So the argument is there's, there's no, no provision in state law that kind of strictly prohibits kids from being sent to other states. But there is a provision that requires all juvenile detention facilities to be licensed by uh, the Department of, of Children and Family Services, the state, the state department that will go around and inspect juvenile detention facilities and license them. And that's pretty clearly laid out in state law. But that department doesn't license any out-of-state facilities. So the argument is, is, is that, you know, State law requires this facility, any facility where a child is going to be held, it, it needs to be licensed by the state department, and these facilities are not licensed. The the other side of the argument it, that I that I remember reading in your story from a spokesperson from the uh, Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement is essentially that yes, you know, we concede that uh, uh, that uh, these are not uh, these facilities uh, aren't and can't be licensed by uh, DCFS, but that law only applies to in-state facilities, not not out-of-state facilities. Which the sort of you know implication of that is that if you if you get the kid out of state, you can put him anywhere you want. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a juvenile facility. You know, it could be you know you just leave him on the street. I think another source in your story said that 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 argument uh, ignores the intent of the law. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think that I think that's a good point is that if there are literally no requirements for any out-of-state facilities, then um, what what are the implications of that? I haven't gone back and looked at the and looked, you know, at the debates surrounding the uh, the passage of, of this of this law that requires licensing, but you can imagine that that their intent was to have any facility where a kid is being held be licensed. Richard Pittman, who's the he's the director of juvenile services at the state public defender board, who you were referencing, basically said this ignores the intent of the law. He's said, you know, to me, like, I'm open to to possibilities here of, you know, including the state licensing out of state facilities. You know, um, he's kind of open to potential solutions. I think that's not his ideal. He doesn't feel like kids should be sent out of state. But. If they're going to be, I think he would like there to be some, you know, some oversight. And, you know, there's there's other sort of potential problems with sending kids out of state. For instance, someone brought up to me if a kid in one of these facilities, 
you know, commits another crime it, it, while in the facility, if they, if they get charged with, you know, assaulting a staff member at one of these facilities or another, another person, kid detained, are they then going to be charged in, in the, you know, juvenile justice system in Mississippi or Alabama? Mm-hmm. And are they going to have cases going on in both these places at once? And what are the potential implications of that? The story at the center of this um, involves a, a juvenile identified only as J.D., um, from Assumption, who was arrested in Assumption Parish. And, and the interesting thing about Assumption Parish it, is it seems to be one of the more heavy users of this. We, we saw some records showing that they um, had, I think it was over a dozen, um, over a dozen kids over the past year sent to out-of-state facilities, um, some for, you know, uh, the better part of six months or even more to the tune of $100,000 a year, it almost seems like uh, for not too much more money than that, uh, you know, the, the the parish council could could fund, uh, you know, uh, at least, you know, understand, you know, I understand that maybe they don't have the, the resources to build a juvenile facility, but it seems like with, with that kind of money being spent already, they could come very close to, you know, getting into a sort of contractor arrangement with a facility locally that could be licensed by DCFS. Do you get any sense that there's any, you know, sense of urgency in parishes like Assumption to, to deal with this problem in a different way? Yeah, I actually don't know specifically uh, what the conversations have been in Assumption, but there are certainly parishes uh, throughout the state who feel urgently, who are, who are both pushing uh the legislature to to kind of find some money for this to to uh support them in building local juvenile detention facilities but i mean also one interesting thing we saw last session which didn't go through was an effort to start charging all 17 year olds as adults again which was something that the state had done for a long time and then changed the law in was it in 2017 uh, yeah, it's, it's 16 or 17. I can't remember offhand, but yeah, around there. Yeah, several years ago, they they changed the law, and now 17 year olds are 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 presumed are are automatically kind of adjudicated in the juvenile justice system. District attorneys can file to to charge them as adults, but they're they're naturally charged in the juvenile justice system. But there's been a push to to undo that and to to start charging all 17 year olds as adults. And one of the reasons they've they've given is that we don't have space in our juvenile justice detention centers to to house these kids, and it'd be easier if we could just basically put them all in adult jails. Hmm. I, I I actually didn't I didn't realize that was part of the conversation for that bill this year. That's interesting. Yeah, that was actually how I I realized that it was happening was that a district attorney, uh, Tony Clayton, was testifying in front of the legislature and and uh, on this bill. Um, to to unraise the age, as it were, to start charging 17-year-olds as adults. And he basically said, you know, I have kids going to Alabama um, to, you know, to be held. And that was the first I'd ever heard of that. So uh, that, that was really how it came to my attention. Did anyone in the, that hearing push back on that and say, like, well, well, maybe maybe rather than going back on our, our big criminal justice reform from just a few years ago, uh, we should be having a conversation about getting funding for for uh, juvenile care in some of these parishes. No, no one mentioned it at all. It was um, a bit surprising. So now it sits in front of the Supreme Court and they decide whether or not to take it up. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, they'll they'll uh, issue a ruling on whether or not they're gonna, going to hear the case. Um, and it's not entirely clear when that decision will be made. Mm. But. Okay. Phase three, back in the news again. A judge this week issued a very exasperated sounding order in the ongoing legal battle over the phase three jail facility. What's happening? Well, to... I mean, try and as briefly as possible catch people up to speed. Uh, the city has been ordered to build a new jail facility, an 89-bed medical and mental health care facility. This has been an ongoing battle. The city does not want to build the facility, but they've kind of run out of options at this point. They've challenged it in court. It's been shut down. And now the judge has basically said, you need to keep moving forward on this. Otherwise, you're going to get held in contempt. But just on Tuesday, the judge issued an order basically basically suggesting that conversations have been ongoing about this alternative option of retrofitting a floor of the current jail instead of building phase three. And this is an option that's, you know, that's been put forward for years by both reform groups and then more recently the city when they were trying to get out of building phase three. And has has been repeatedly shot down by some of the other parties in the consent decree and and, and the federal court. Um, so you know, as far as the judge is concerned, this option is totally off the table. Right. Uh, but he's received some information that there are meetings going on behind the scenes about this potential retrofit option. And the judge in this order basically said, "I have information that there are meetings happening, <laughs> and specifically, they're involved this." This consultant, this this criminal justice consultant that the city has has worked with for about a decade, uh, James Austin. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, you know, just dealing with the consultant, anybody who's been following the jail for a long time um, will know that name. He's the he's the guy who led the uh, criminal justice working group in 2010 that basically uh, came up with the the design for what is now the the Orleans Justice Center, which is the jail that replaced the uh, Orleans Parish Prison, he was he was kept on following the approval of uh, the the OJC um, to kind of keep an eye. Uh, you know, he was basically kept on as a potential Phase Three consultant back during the Landrieu administration because uh, back then Sheriff Marlon Gusman was pushing very hard to build a third building on the campus. And if anybody's been to the jail campus, you can see evidence of that right there in the, in the form of a weird empty lot between the two uh, existing jail buildings with sky bridges that kind of go out to nowhere between the <laughs> two of them. So he was kept on to sort of monitor patterns in the jail population to determine whether and at what point the city might need a uh, third jail building. Uh, and for many years, he, he, was, uh, he was of the opinion that the city did need a third jail building. He is more recently as kind of arrest pattern arrest patterns uh, have changed, um, as well as uh, you know how how uh, the courts do bonds has kind of changed. Uh, there are a lot fewer people in jail than there used to be, and he's kind of he's he's kind of come around to the position that a retrofit is uh, is is doable and perhaps even wise. And he consulted with the city in um, you know its initial conversations to sort of design a, a, a retrofit option. So that's James Austin's background. And I think him being involved is part of what is concerning to this judge, because uh, James Austin was also brought on as a witness for the city during a hearing in 2020, 
uh, when the city was trying to get out of doing phase three, they brought him in as witness and he recommended, he said, you know, he sort of testified in favor of doing the retrofit. So I think that's why the judge is concerned about him being involved, as well as the fact that he is a city contractor, which, you know, which, uh, you know, may suggest that, you know, the city isn't directly involved in organizing these meetings. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, just just to, if anybody reads reads this opinion or this ruling, and we have it linked uh, in, in Nick's story, um, you can see, uh, just background on the judge, you can just really see how frustrated he is. So there's two judges involved in this case. One is the main judge, the district judge, who's overseeing the entire consent decree the, uh, over the jail. Um, and this judge is a magistrate judge who seems to kind of get dispatched to deal with sort of side issues, such as the phase three issue. So he has he has been the primary judge presiding over the sort of uh, peripheral battle over the phase three facility as part of the consent decree. And it's very clear, and it has been for quite a while, that he is tired of dealing with this issue and just wants the city to move ahead as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, he's clear exasperated is the right word, but it's been, I mean, it's, it's been like that for a long time with the city, but now also there's a a new sheriff and, you know, Sheriff uh, Susan Hudson was elected, you know, running opposed to the phase three facility. And now it's like, he's like dealing with like two entities who've sort of teamed up against him, uh, who don't want to build this facility. And I think it's like just added a whole nother, another layer of, of frustration. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Carolyn. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, education reporter Marta Jusin, and lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Josh. The Port of South Louisiana and a company in the process of building a controversial grain elevator in St. John Parish have inked a deal that could cost the parish a lot of money, according to the group Together Louisiana. Tell us what they found. So just as a, a, a little bit of background, we've covered this uh, this proposed grain elevator uh, before quite a bit. Basically, it's an enormous project that's been proposed. Uh, it's also been the subject of some controversy. Um, there would be about 54 silos. There, there would be this railroad infrastructure. There would be a dock on the Mississippi River. And some of the residents in this community in uh, St. John the Baptist Parish have um, raised concerns about the environmental and health impacts that this project might have on their community. And um, they, 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 they've also argued that they could um, irreparably harm what might be what they have reason to believe are some unmarked uh, graves of, of their uh, enslaved ancestors. So it's, it's, it's been the subject of, of litigation. And like I said, we've covered this before. But basically, um, this group together, Louisiana, in this um, analysis, found that the company Greenfield Louisiana LLC 
if they were to pay the the ad valorem taxes they're called or property taxes essentially like any other entity would be uh, subjected to and, and be expected to pay then over 30 years um, that that would come to about uh, 273 uh, million dollars but with this um, payment in lieu of taxes deal or it's called a pilot uh, deal that uh, Greenfield secured with the Port of South Louisiana, which is not an elected body, and they're essentially uh, acting on behalf of the parish council and and the school board mm. and and the you know the the different governmental bodies in the parish. By virtue of this deal, they would only pay uh, sixty four million dollars over that time. So it's 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 a difference of about two hundred nine million dollars. The question is, how is an unelected body that doesn't actually that that isn't all, you know, isn't the tax collector for the parish um, and doesn't doesn't make most of the legal decisions for the parish? How is it able to do something like that? So the, way a, the way a pilot works in Louisiana, payment in lieu of taxes is what what happens is the 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 company seeking the pilot agreement transfers ownership of the the land to the uh, the public body that is their counterpart. So that makes it a public piece of land no longer subject to taxation. And that's that's why a, a body like the parish council couldn't necessarily stop it. and and then at, in exchange what they'll do is say okay since you're not since since you're going to be operating and technically leasing this from us instead of instead of a uh, instead of paying taxes on what is now public land um, you're going to to pay a flat fee uh, every year for 30 years and uh, just just to add to that the port is also by virtue of this deal set to benefit economically o over the course of this pilot program they're set to receive, I, I think, up to almost $7 million. So it's it's not as if there's some completely disinterested party, let's say, in, at least in economic terms. Hmm. And it was striking in your story that they, they one of the commission members essentially said that, you know, they basically said, well, this is a good deal for us. It's really not our, our business or our problem if it's not such a great deal for the entire parish. It was this fascinating exchange at this April meeting when they voted on this. Um, it, it was um, one, one of the, um, uh, the, the port commissioners, uh, as I believe they're called, um, Joey Murray, was saying that he's, he's not comfortable at all with what he had been presented at that meeting. There, there wasn't anything in writing from the parish council, from the school board, from any of the governmental bodies that would be affected by this. And he's saying that he's heard from the assessor who I talked to for this story that they could have gotten it, it, it comes to um, uh, two million dollars a year uh, in this deal. Um, he was saying that they could have easily gotten three million. They, they, they should have gone for three million. Um, and, and they're essentially giving away, as I think it's even I might be paraphrasing the, the farm, the cow, the farmer's wife, the farmer's <laughs> daughter. And he he's the only one to have voted against it. But um Paul Matthews, I believe his name is, who's the CEO of the port, was saying that, hey, it's not our responsibility to negotiate on behalf of these governmental bodies. That's not what we're here for. This is a good deal. We're here to get the project going, and that's all we're going to do. Okay. And the company and the port are, are purporting what benefit 
So the company and both the port uh, cited these figures. Um, the company cited them directly. The the, the port just kind of uh, in, in a in a written statement just kind of asserted these numbers with, with, without providing a citation. But um, at any rate, there is this study that um, a an economic uh, development agency nonprofit, uh, Greater New Orleans Inc., came out with recently, showing that. You know, th- this is going to be a really good deal for the community. Uh, it's it's going to provide, among other things, a hundred direct jobs. It's it's going to generate all this um, uh, tax revenue. I, I think the, the the figure they came up with was eight point four million dollars in uh, local and state uh, tax revenue. So basically, what the the company and and the porter saying is that you know this this study from Together New Orleans is you know it's a very narrow perspective and it's only telling part of the story you know if you, if you look at the whole picture the whole economic picture then you know this is really a good deal for the community and and no one's even gonna i mean they don't say this but kind of the implication is no one's even gonna notice the fact that you know there's 209 million dollars not going to these local uh, taxing bodies meanwhile the the, the school district, for instance, is in the bottom third of the state, and, and one of the schools got an F grade in 2019. No one's going to notice this um, uh, missing revenue. But the study, not to be too critical, um, I'll, I'll restrain myself, but it doesn't break down uh, the tax revenue in, in any meaningful way. Uh, it, it doesn't say whether, you know, what what percentage is going to the local jurisdictions, which which, which is the point of this of this study that together in uh, Louisiana provided, what percentage is going to the state, what percentage is going to the local jurisdictions. Um, and, and then there's this kind of amazing qualifier that I'm going to read. The, the data cited in the report are not industry specific and do not consider specific tax rates and incentives. Oh. That, that was my paraphrasing. In, you know, in, in, the, in the article, but you get the idea that there, there might be some good reasons to be somewhat skeptical of, of the conclusions that this report is drawing, mm. at least from my perspective. Yeah, well, so, I mean, this gets to a, this gets to a bigger issue that the Lens has reported on in the past. Um, economic impact studies in general, this type, have gotten a lot of criticism. When uh, reporters try to dig into them, to figure out, uh, you know, what what the inputs were, what the math was. They, they are typically uh, uh, conducted by third-party uh, groups, companies that uh, say that their methodology is proprietary. So basically, economic impact studies are, um, as, as in this case, used to justify the expenditure or loss of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars for projects, for tax abatement, and nobody is allowed to know how they work exactly. And furthermore, they tend to be commissioned by the very agencies that justify their existence and measure their success by, one, how much, how many businesses they can attract, and two, how much economic impact that, that their, their work is producing, which again, is being determined by contractors that they hire. And we have found examples. Uh, there was a story Michael S. Stein did in 2018. We've found examples where we were not able to look at the methodology for, for certain economic impact studies, but what we were able to get a look at was the emails between some of the groups requesting them 
and the uh, the people performing them. And and it, the cases that we saw, the, the agencies that were requesting them were asking for specific conclusions for from economic impact studies. And you know, this is this is supposed to be something that that we're supposed to accept as science. Um, it's hard to do that when uh, you know the person commissioning this, the the, the so called science is asking for the science to reach a specific conclusion. It's exactly like a, a, a pharmaceutical company paying for its own studies of efficacy or yeah, I mean, adverse it, effects. It, there, yeah, there does seem to be a, a similar con- conflict in both cases. Yes. Right. Hmm. Okay. Interesting story. Thanks, Josh. You got it. Marta, schools are back in session. Their kids are coming back. And all we talked about, it seems like for the last two years, was covid but this year uh, doesn't seem like it's an issue at all. I, I would certainly say it doesn't seem like doesn't feel like the the top or the forefront of the agenda anymore. Um, I was out at Sci High on Monday morning at seven a.m. Like wow, we were talking about earlier with early high school start times. Um, I wouldn't say kids were bright eyed and bushy tailed to be out there at that time, but um, their principal was joking with them. You know, come on, you guys were you were so you know, stressed out and um, frustrated by not being in class for the last two years. Come on, get excited. Like right. we're going back. So it's a, it's a big change. And when I say that it's not in a critical way or anything, it's, it's, it, it, but it, it's just striking to notice the difference between the beginning of the school year last year mm-hmm. and the beginning of the school year this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, the NOLA public schools was one of, if not the only holdout, you know, as we got farther along in this pandemic, um, to uh, to maintain uh, certain restrictions district-wide. And those are largely gone now, aren't they, Marta? Right. So the district does still have, you know, essentially a mask recommendation. But you, like we've talked about in the past, all char- basically every charter in the city is its ind- own independent school district. And so they get to make that call based on the district and the health department's advice. Um, I would say maybe a quarter of kids that Sai were wearing masks when they were getting off the bus. Um, I don't know if that looked different in the classrooms when they once they got inside the building, but um, yes, it, you know it was noticeably different than last year. You know, I think part of that obviously is like over the past year, um, vaccinations have been opened up to a large portion of our you know school community that they weren't able to get before. Right. This is arguably you know the fact that they can do this, the, the, the fact that 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 Nola Public Schools is comfortable doing this now may speak to the, you know, their own success earlier in the pandemic. They were pushing vaccinations really hard. They were having uh, community testing sites. Other school districts in the state that really never had any restrictions at all were also not, were were not doing those things either. Right. And some of those things didn't necessarily cost money, right? Like they were done with grant money from the health department. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there were districts that throughout the state that did not opt into that stuff. And community transmission at the moment is at what level? It Well, actually, there's probably going to be a new determination uh, this evening from the CDC. It's currently high. Um, I think it will probably remain high. And so with that, you know, the district says, you know, we do recommend masking in smaller groups, um, you know, potentially breaking up some social activities or spreading out lunch periods, that kind of stuff. Uh, but again, that's up to each school to do on its own. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, it, it is still considered high, both in the city's measurement and uh, and the state's for right now. As Marta say, says, that might change soon. And, you know, certainly the data we're seeing from the city, you know, and, and to a lesser extent the state, which which lags behind the city a little bit, does look like we're on the 
on on the downside of this, I don't want to say this too early, but it you know it's beginning to look like we may be on the downside of this spike that we've seen over the summer from the BA five uh, subvariant. Okay, is are there going to be um, tracking efforts made at schools and reports like we've had in the past? We don't have the official word on that yet. I mean, schools will certainly still be required to report to the Louisiana Department of Health. Uh, the question, though, is whether and how both LDH and NOLA PS are going to present those results if they're if they're given out. So mm. NOLA is still, um, I, I missed the last school board meeting because I was at Education Writers Conference, um, so I don't know if they gave an update on you know whether or not they would put that dashboard back together, but um, it'll be interesting to see here in the coming weeks, and I'll be checking in with them. Okay. And other elsewhere in school news, this week you reported on the NOLA Public Schools District issuing two citations to the city's largest charter network, KIPP. What was that about? Yeah, so these were largely in relation to um, attendance issues and disciplinary problems, um, and specifically uh, with students with disabilities who have different uh, protections in, in those areas within the district. You know, most notably, there were several students with disabilities who have more than had had more than 10 absences throughout the school year, which is always a red flag. And then in addition, there were several instances where parents were not notified of either disciplinary measures or um, other issues. Um, and that's really, really an important thing when you're talking about this, um, you know, population of students. Talk about why parental notification is really a critical issue here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important with any student, but in particular, when you're talking about a student with a disability, you know, you're working with a range of students from students who might not be able to comprehend or be able to, you know, tell their parent that something happened um, to students who, you know, who could, but, you know, also high schoolers are high schoolers. So you still want to have that parent, that parent in school contact, but it also is a legally protected uh, measure that parents are supposed to be notified when certain, certain things happen. And, you know, I think it's, you know, these are some of the things that kind of went into and helped build the consent decree that the district is under right now was, mm. you know, this kind of lack of, of communication, lack of reporting. So I think, you know, we just want to make sure that that is, is maintained. Yeah. And it's also part of the, I mean, it's also a part of the due process procedure for, for NOLA public schools, right? I mean, that this is, this is, you notify parents in a timely fashion, make sure they're notified and the parents are then are then able to advocate for their children during uh, disciplinary, you know, disciplinary hearings with the district, especially things like expulsion hearings. And regarding special ed issues and kids who are suspended or that suspension is required to be a specified time. What's what's going on with that, with KIPP? What happened? Yeah, so uh, basically a student with a disability cannot be suspended for more than 10 days throughout the school year. If a student is disrupting a class or something, we can't just continually be putting these kids out. They're not going to receive it. A fair education, which is protected under federal law. The 10 days limit is also in the law. Yeah, so as I understand it, it's it's not as if it's prohibited altogether, but once you once you are going to get over that 10 day mark from the school year, a sort of process kicks in. You have to do uh, you have to do uh, what is it called a manifestation determination review, um, which right. You- so that's actually any time that a child's placement is changed. So oh, I see. Okay, if you're going to be moving a child. Um, you have to determine whether or not that that behavior that has resulted, or you know, the people want to result in this discipline. Was that behavior a result of their disability or was it not a result of their disability? Right, right. And then and then so when you get to the 10 days, basically what happens is it's it's 
it's considered a, a you know a change of placement or something like that. And uh, what has to happen is that the student has to continue receiving both education and their special education services that are specified in their IEP while they're away from the classroom setting, right? Right. Or even if they're moved, you know, from a gen ed classroom to a, a, a special education classroom or some right. other type of setting within the school. So what's Kip saying in response to these accusations? Uh, Kip is basically disputing every allegation. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like the district might be um, moving the needle on one and agreeing with them, but there are several different issues at play here. Um, I know that the, you know, Kip is Kip is arguing, you know, that you're right there. They say that, oh, you're right. In this one case, we did not um, notify the parents, you know, in writing, but we were talking to them on the phone. And they've submitted call logs that I've been looking through. Um, but I still think that goes to just, you know, like Charles was saying, it, you know, it's for the parents' benefit to have those records, too. Yeah, they're also saying one of their main defenses, and and this one might be the one that the this, the district is, is uh, sort of changing its opinion on, I'm not sure. But uh, one of their main defenses is that in some of these cases, we're not talking about a type of suspension that sort of triggers these special education laws. We're talking about an in-school suspension and the way they do it at KIPP according to their response is an in-school, you know, an in-school suspension isn't just a kid like sitting in a room staring at a wall. It's a kid working one-on-one with a staff member who is going through the curriculum that the student's classmates are learning um, and continuing to work with uh, special education uh, service providers. Is that the one that the district seems to be changing its opinion on, this 10-day thing? I believe so, but I'm trying to get a hold of that letter, and I have not been able to do so yet. <laughs> what I do know is that KIPP and um, NOLA Public Schools are going to be meeting in person soon, so I think that is going to bring some additional clarity to this. It's a lot for our new superintendent to take on in the first school Yeah, year. you know, that was one of the other things about this story, and Einstein obviously was happening when it was happening, the graduation issues there, but he did put out a number of warnings kind of on his way out the door there. Right. It's a lot. All right, Marta, thanks. Thank you. All right, everybody, have a good week. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Eldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Joshua Rosenberg, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.